and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith back with another episode of Cinema brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. Every now and then I have to make a disclaimer for my podcast that cinema is not about movie reviews. It's about the effects of cynicism on filmmaking and and our entertainment. As films start building these franchises, uh, you you get very uneven installments. And and so the graph on these these kind of films are are very up and down, almost like a Richter scale. The Star Trek franchise has, has received a lot of crap over the years and I've talked about on here as well the cynicism of J.J. Abrams into darkness, which was a major, major misstep from his very successful reboot of the Star Trek franchise, which needed an overhaul for some time. It's really interesting to see the evolution of of the Star Trek movie. So before I go into the the topic of today's episode, which is uh, Star Trek Seven Generations, uh, better known as the one where they kill Captain Kirk. Star Trek, as as most of us know, uh, 50 years ago, debuted on television, had a three-year run. It was uh, a five-year mission in the, in the series, but it, it lasted only three years. And then it survived in syndication. And it caught like a, a whole new cultish kind of group, whether you call them Trekkies or Trekkers. It doesn't matter. Uh, many people thought science fiction was pretty much done for a while, and, and no one was looking at it. And then, of course, George Lucas made a little film called Star Wars, And suddenly everybody had to have a a sci-fi action uh, kind of movie. Star Trek, the motion picture, came really from a proposed Star Trek Phase 2 television uh, reboot kind of thing, a continuation. And uh, a lot of elements from that television show rolled over into the first two motion pictures. And for those of you who saw Star Trek, the motion picture, and I've said this on the show before, uh, I was in sixth grade when the motion picture came out in 1979. I am not a huge Star Trek TV show fan. I watched it as a kid. I caught episodes here and there. I was never into Star Trek until I got into high school and and I was dating. So I I didn't fit that, that Trekker stereotype that Saturday Night Live skewered so well with the Get a life, will you people, when Shatner said that. I wasn't that person at all. And then one evening after this big blowout party, everybody was kind of passed out. And I was awake with like one or two other people. And sitting on the VCR, and it was a Betamax, uh, was Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Now, I already had a, a bad taste in my mouth from Star Trek The Motion Picture because, as I said, I was a sixth grader when that came out. I went to see it in theaters, and I fell asleep in that movie. I I must have fallen asleep for at least five minutes, maybe 10. And when I woke up, it was almost like nothing had happened in that time that I was out. Star Trek, the motion picture was like this big, beautiful wax meal that you see sitting on a table. And then you take a bite into it and it really doesn't have any taste. But with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, they went right back to the TV series 
Uh, they, they directly connected to the Space Seed episode with Ricardo Montalban. They focused on character development and bringing back the characters that, that fans loved. Now, you can argue, well, you know, they killed Spock. Actually, no, nobody really knew that at the time. You went in because it was the Wrath of Khan and they brought back a familiar face. And the previews and everything seemed to promise you this was going to be a very different movie than the motion picture. So it was almost like the producers were saying, just give us one more chance. So I'm sitting there at four o'clock in the morning uh, a little buzzed and going, I am not really tired and, and I shouldn't really be driving home. So I popped in this beta tape and I started watching The Wrath of Khan and I was sucked in. And by the time that we get to the big finale where Spock dies, I mean, I'm in tears and the whole thing. I couldn't believe I was moved by a Star Trek story. I enjoyed the original series characters very much. So for me, uh, the whole theme of, of growing old and dying and finding purpose in your life and the meaning of life, which really transcended space battles and, and all of that stuff. But Kirk's whole journey of you know becoming Admiral and, and losing touch with what really matters really struck a chord with me. And even though I was only, my God, I think I was a junior or senior in high school, I think I said when I saw The Wrath of Khan, uh, it made sense to me and, and, it, and it touched something in me that I, I knew I had such a great time in high school, but I knew the moments were fleeting and I knew that time was moving on. And I got what William Shatner's James T. Kirk was lamenting in the film and then the discovery of his son, the rediscovery of his son, David, and, and, and all of that. Uh, it's when Kirk says in Star Trek II about that he feels old and worn out. And he looks at his son and he thinks of a life that could have been. And yes, Kirk has had a life of adventure, but in the end, what does it all really matter? And, and that hit me. Into Star Trek III, uh, The Search for Spock, which I got this time around. I was working at a movie theater as a boy in high school. And uh, so I decided I'm going to watch this in the theater. And while you know everybody goes, well, you know, the third one just didn't really hold up to Khan, nothing's going to hold up to Khan. But I felt the continuation of the story... Uh, especially Kirk's devotion to Spock and, and again, capitalizing on that friendship really kept that tone. And yes, there are definitely issues with Star Trek III, the search for Spock, and some of it is in production value of the sets. It was very clear that these sets were sound stages. Um, the fight at the end, you know, was, was very Star Trek TV series, and maybe that was deliberate. I don't know. However, the special effects from ILM, again, uh, really steal the show. Perhaps it's when Kirk steals the Enterprise that is just such a fantastic moment in that movie. And it says everything about James T. Kirk. And then, of course, his son dies. Christopher Lloyd's Klingon uh, leader kills uh, David Marcus on the Genesis planet, and, and Kirk is devastated. There you got to see Shatner on full restraint which is really cool. Nimoy, who has worked with Shatner, probably you know knew of Shatner's penchant to choose scenery and what could have been a terribly cheesy, over-the-top performance in the death of David Marcus is measured and cool and then overshadowed by the death of the USS Enterprise. So my point in telling you all of this stuff is there was some deliberate care going on here and Leonard Nimoy, as a director of this film, really understood these characters and did not just turn around and deliver us 
uh, a quick knockoff from the Wrath of Khan. Look, they, they could have just added another Khan-like character and, and really built it up. But the third one really explores those layers of friendship and devotion and sacrifice. This is not cinema. This is not cheap knockoff stuff. So then we go to The Voyage Home. If you're not a Trek fan, that's the one you usually show people. And it's always known as The One with the Whales. And it's a good one to kind of bring people in. The, the cast decided, and Nimoy definitely decided, that it was time to lighten things up a little bit since this you know whole dark tone of death and dying and growing old kind of thing. Uh, so they had some fun with Star Trek Four. The series then takes a stumble in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And look, I knew that that movie was going to be troubled just from the preview. Go on YouTube and look at the original preview for this 1989 release and and you'll get it. Especially, they, they really tried to continue over that wacky humor uh, with Scotty walking into some beam on the ship after saying, I know this ship like the back of my hand. Bang. Oh, there were a lot of problems with Star Trek V from budget to overall muddled story. And most of all, Shatner unleashed. And Leonard Nimoy acknowledged that himself there, there were a lot of problems with Star Trek V. But Nimoy seemed to be a real class act in the way that, look, Shatner was his friend. I, and, and we can go into all of this. And well, Shatner is an unpleasant guy. I've never met William Shatner. I don't know. From what I've read, that his cast members, his fellow cast members, don't really have a lot of nice things to say about him. But Nimoy, for whatever reason, found some type of detente with William Shatner and, and they had a friendship. And he, of course, returned and he had a very prevalent role. Uh, we have, you know, the whole half-brother thing with Spock. And there are some genuine moments in Star Trek V. There really are. Especially the scene where Cybok, uh, Spock's half-brother, has to show the crew, you know, moments from their lives where they should have turned left or right. And Kirk's speech about why he won't fall for this, what he felt was a parlor trick, is really moving. And, and it works really well. And it gave some great character shading. Uh, for Spock and even McCoy, it was it was terrific for the big three, as they call them. But the bottom line is, is that Star Trek V suffers from a number of production problems and is probably the, the least favorite among the original series films, I would imagine. Then you move into Star Trek VI. Again, they, they kind of went back and they brought back Nicholas Meyer from Star Trek II, who also had a hand in penning the script, I believe uh, had a touch of Star Trek 3, but definitely had a hand in the script for Star Trek 4, uh, The Voyage Home. So now we have Star Trek 6, which was meant to be the send-off for the original series crew. And it was a classy send-off. It was the film that bridged the story points of why in the next generation with Star Trek The Next Generation, the Klingons are now part of the Federation and Worf is working on the ship. And, and you get this. And they literally signed off at the end. You see the cast write their signatures, which tells you this journey for this original cast is over. And they did it on a high note. High production value, great special effects again from Industrial Light and Magic, a good story. And I felt that Star Trek VI was a very classy send-off for all of the crew. From what I understand, Star Trek VII was already commissioned just as uh, the Next Generation show was, was starting to wind down. And uh, so they apparently had a, a two-picture deal for the Next Generation to kind of, you know, take the torch and run with it. So I got to stop here for a moment to say that uh, I, I never really warmed up to the Next Generation characters. I thought Patrick Stewart's 
uh, Jean-Luc Picard was brilliant. And, and Patrick Stewart, without Patrick Stewart, the next generation would have just never, I think, taken off the way that it did. Uh, and, and the new Picard series, which CBS aired just before the pandemic started breaking out, I thought was terrific. And, and again, only because of Patrick Stewart. And uh, over the, the course of The Next Generation, they did a, a great job overall, I would say, of kind of tying back to the original series. Uh, the, the Naked Now, for example, they, they mention about uh, when the Enterprise uh, had its issue with, with that uh, delirium kind of thing that they dealt with. Uh, you know, you had Dr. McCoy, who showed up in, in the first episode uh, just to, to give the blessing to the sick bay. And, and that was classy. And especially his walk with Data, who, of course, you know, has to fill in somewhere along the line as, as a Spock replacement. But Brent Spiner's Data went above and beyond that. And by the end of the series and even through uh, the Star Trek Next Generation movies, uh, Spiner really did a great job. In, in bringing Data away from Spock. And in the Picard series, which is really all about Data, and I don't want to give away any spoilers here if you have not seen it, uh, finally gave Data uh, a proper send-off and a very moving one in closure. That's what I really loved about the Picard series. Now, to be fair, I was never a fan of the uh, Star Trek original series on TV. So I never really warmed up. But I did give credit, like I said... Uh, where they they brought back original series characters to kind of plug in. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. The episode with uh, James Doohan's uh, Scotty called Relics, yeah, I guess. Uh, it looked like they were just trying to shoehorn in uh, an original series cast member. And overall, I'm, I'm not quite sure that episode works so well. But the one with Spock did work well. It was called Unification. And they shot it right around the time that Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, was getting ready to release. So it was a cross-promotional thing while also setting the stage for the next generation movies. So it was very clever. It all worked. It was well-written. And, um, you know, Leonard Nimoy returned. And this is my point in invoking Nimoy. Nimoy was a stickler for quality. And he was only going to return if Spock had something to do which is why he came for a two-part episode in uh, Unification on the original, I'm sorry, in, on the Next Generation series. And Nimoy understood, you're not just throwing Spock in to throw Spock in, which is why I felt the Relics episode in um, the Next Generation did just that with Scotty. It was like, well, we need to throw somebody in. Let's throw Scotty in there. However, Leonard Nimoy was not going to do this. So by the time that they were getting ready to move the next generation uh, into a series of films, which if I read correctly, they originally scheduled two of them. Uh, they were going to need quality. And Leonard Nimoy was approached to direct Star Trek Seven Generations. The script was already written and Nimoy was not allowed to change the script. And when he read the script, and by all accounts that I've read, Nimoy hated the script. And looking back now on Generations, I'm going to say that this is the first time in the Star Trek franchise of all the films, including Shatner's uh, Final Frontier, Star Trek V, this is the first time that cinema actually plays right into the Star Trek franchise. This was not a movie, unlike Star Trek VI, to bridge or pass a torch or do anything with some class. This was a marketing gimmick. 
The sole purpose of Star Trek VII Generations was simply to cash in on the novelty, putting the two captains together. So really what this was, was a bigger budget relics episode of shoehorning in an original series cast member into the next generation to cross that audience over into the next generation movies. It was a complete cash grab and cynical marketing plan and Leonard Nimoy knew it. There were a number of problems with the script, one of them being that in the opening of the film where Kirk will vanish off the Enterprise B and be presumed dead, that basically uh, they brought Spock and McCoy and Kirk in. Basically, they were just there for cameos. Now, DeForest Kelly was also having health problems at the time, but he turned down the role because he said the same thing that, you know, hey, this is just nothing but a, a chintzy cameo. And after a really classy run with Star Trek VI in which we all signed off, I'm not doing it. And Leonard Nimoy said the same thing. There's nothing for Spock to do but just passively stand there as an observer until the plot unfolds to get Kirk off the ship to appear later at the end of the film. Nimoy had a number of problems with this, said that the only positive thing in the script that that he felt was there was the emotion chip uh, subplot with Data. And you know what? The producers and the original writers of this script They say now that Nimoy was right. He said this thing needs a page one rewrite. He pegged this one for what it was. It was a crossover cash cow. And that's exactly why people came to see this. I get the whole Kirk Picard thing. It's it's the best catch to bring people and cross them over from the original series into the next generation. And you have two different flavors of captains here. and, And there's that debate that goes on whether you're a Kirk or a Picard person. I did not find the subsequent Star Trek Next Generation movies to be all that great, even including uh, First Contact, which I felt was, again, a a bit of a pandering and and a cynical move uh, because they knew they stumbled with Generations. So First Contact was supposed to be kind of like their Wrath of Khan. You're going to bring back your best villain. And and I think most people would argue next to Q, uh, the best villain for the Next Generation were the Borg. So they, they tried doing that, but the Next Generation crew, they, they always do the right thing. They were too squeaky clean, and it was, it was just too, I, I can't even put my finger on it, but they were just too, uh, they were just too nice. Everybody's, you know, very sensitive to everyone, and it, it didn't have that rough and tumble thing that the original series cast had. So with Star Trek Generations... Uh, the goal, of course, is you got to bring back William Shatner and let's cross this over. I mean, you've killed Spock, you got to kill Kirk. And everybody pretty much went into Generations knowing that this is the one where Captain Kirk dies. So another cynical move here. It's a gimmick movie is really what it is. They're sucking you in based on the pretext that Captain Kirk is going to die. Okay, so let's move forward. So you start out and there is Kirk. And he's arriving on, on the Enterprise B for some type of inspection. It's, it's doing its uh, quick trip around the galaxy, around the neighborhood kind of thing. And of all people, uh, that's the captain of this ship. It's, it's uh, Alan Ruck. I mean, Cameron from Ferris Bueller. What's this guy been doing? And that kind of sends you a message right there. I mean, this is the captain of the Enterprise B, this, this guy? Well, where's, you know, Bones and, and Spock? You know, where, where are they? And of course... Deep in your mind, if you're, you know, understanding film, you're like, they probably didn't want to come back. 
So that tells you something already. You're kind of starting off this negative note already. And so we go through the events, as you know, where Kirk rescues the Enterprise B's, call back into action one more time, uh, and he saves the Enterprise B, and everybody assumes he dies because he gets sucked into what is called this Nexus energy ribbon, which has some kind of mystical power to, to pull you in and give you whatever it is you desire. It's almost like a floating paradise ribbon that floats randomly through space. And you have a villain in Malcolm McDowell as Dr. Soren, who lost his family and wants to go into the energy ribbon to relive his life with his family and live in this, you know, paradise illusion. And, you know, quite frankly, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, I know people say, well, it's not real. That's the whole premise that Generations gets around to and as well, it's really just not real. You know what? By that point in time in my life, who the hell cares? If you can relive certain things and and just have, you know, endless enjoyment and in in especially the twilight of your years, screw it. That's a lot better than being put out to pasture by the Federation and growing old and, and ending up in some Federation senior care home. I'll take the Nexus Energy Ribbon. And we never really know how this ribbon works. It's obviously very destructive. It destroys a number of ships in the opening film, almost destroys the Enterprise B, blows a big hole in it. So whatever it touches seems to burn up, except unless it's carbon-based, because humans can be pulled into this totally intact. They're fine. So the rules are kind of uh, fast and loose right here in the opening of Generations. So Kirk disappears, and then, of course, we we waste no time in getting right to the, the next generation crew. And throughout most of the movie, it's it's about uh, Picard trying to figure out the mystery of this energy ribbon. Now, the, the bridge to both generations seems to be Whoopi Goldberg's Guinan, the uh, barkeep from the next generation. Uh, she meets Chekhov in, in the hold of the Enterprise B. She was on the ship. So obviously Guinan is very, very old. Guinan makes definite reference later that she's been inside this Nexus ribbon and somehow knows of James T. Kirk when she urges Picard to find someone to help him stop Soren from blowing up some star which will destroy this planet and kill millions of people all in order to change the route uh, and course of this energy ribbon so Soren can get back into the Nexus. It seems like a lot of nonsense. Here's where I I have the fundamental problem with Generations and that is if you're going to kill James T. Kirk then you freaking do it right and you give him a huge send-off. And if you guys saw uh, Star Trek uh, Nemesis, they gave Data the send-off that Kirk should have had. Mentioning all those other Star Trek films, the previous Star Trek films are about growing old, purpose in life, doing something with your life. Now we take Kirk, we suck him into this nexus, and this is on the heels of revealing that Picard has lost his family in a fire back on Earth. And Picard is grieving. So he's lost something very close to him, including, I believe it was a nephew, Rene, I think the the boy's name was. So he lost his nephew and he's weeping to Counselor Troy. and, And obviously the man is very wounded. And the Nexus can cure those things. So Picard ends up in the Nexus. Uh, Kirk is in the Nexus. And somehow Guinan is in the Nexus. And Guinan is able to tell Picard, you're going to need help with this to stop Soren. Look, if you're in the Nexus, the Nexus can also dump you out wherever you want. You can leave the Nexus at will. 
How that happens, I don't know. You know, you have to enter it by literally physically being touched by it. How can you just exit out of it through thought? You just suddenly go, I want to leave the nexus and a flash of light happens and you're out of the nexus. Well, why can't you just say, I want to be in the nexus and go into the nexus? And then most of all, the nexus can deposit you wherever you want to go. So you can go back before certain events. So why does Picard choose to find James T. Kirk and then go only moments before Soren is about to detonate this missile, which will shoot up and put this star out. I don't get it. So go back to where you originally found Soren. Go back to the, you know, the Enterprise, your ship, and lock the guy up, arrest him. With the knowledge that you have from being in the Nexus, you see where I mean? Like, there's a lot of nonsense to this. And it's all just simply to get these two guys together. We have Picard doing all of this. Now, he meets Captain Kirk in the Nexus. Why? We don't know. How he found him? We don't know. All we know is Whoopi Goldberg told him where to find him and that he can help. Why can't Whoopi help him? She says she's an echo or a ghost or I don't know what the hell's going on here. But Picard finally meets up with James T. Kirk. And what is Kirk doing? He is chopping wood in a mountain cabin. And Kirk is so goofy and so indifferent. Kirk is curious by nature. And Kirk understands time travel. They've done it how many times? Kirk understands mysterious things in the universe. So if a captain from 80 years in the future comes back to you and says, look, we're in some type of temporal vortex, blah, 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 blah. Why doesn't Kirk listen to him? Now, some argue, well, that's because the Nexus, it intoxicated him because it's giving him what he wants. Well, then why don't they establish that? They don't even say anything about it. That's something that we have to be given on the lack of empirical evidence. This is lazy writing and this is cynical writing. This is just simply do whatever the hell we have to do to one, pair up the two captains and then kill one of them. That's exactly what this is. This is a cash grab and a cynical gimmick. Picard has to chase Kirk around this cabin, basically uh, giving him the, the plot line that we already know and telling him all about Sorn and his plans and a nexus and blah, blah, blah. And people will die trying to get Kirk to give a damn again. There's a moment where we're watching the two captains brought together from two separate series make eggs. We're watching Kirk fry some eggs. And I was sitting in the theater going, this is what we're doing. We've brought these two captains together to make eggs and toast. So then it's revealed that Kirk has a moment where he's being selfish and he feels that the galaxy or the universe owes him one. And he's about to go up the steps. Here's where I have the other major cynical problem. By Star Trek 2, even in Star Trek 1, it was hinted in the motion picture that Kirk is having a real rough time being a desk jockey and being an admiral. And Star Trek 2 gives him that back, okay? He, he cons attack on the ship, uh, the Genesis Project, all that. Kirk assumes command of the Enterprise, and Spock is more than happy to step aside after lecturing Kirk, saying that commanding a starship is really your, your first and best destiny. That's where you belong, on the bridge of a ship. So Kirk is telling us in Generations he was going to go back to Starfleet, that this moment in time in the Nexus that Picard has stepped into with him is the day he was going to tell some chick that we've never heard of before. Okay, Antonia, I guess he met somebody along the way 
after Star Trek VI, I guess, and uh, that he's going to go back to Starfleet. Why would you do this? Because you spent almost six motion pictures showing Kirk's grief over the loss of his son. Don't you think the number one plot point would be if he could relive his life over is to go back and at the least prevent his son's death so he could be with his son and live that life that he felt he missed or go back to the time when Carol Marcus was in his life and raise that boy as father and mother to David. That would be the first place I would go to as a writer. And instead, they bring up some bimbo on horseback, some piece of ass up in a cabin room saying, Jim, you know, where's my breakfast? What the hell is that? And I'm going to tell you what that is. That is cynical filmmaking. They didn't care about this at all. And Picard is standing around like, well, I I guess I'll just stand down here while you take her breakfast and get laid. And, you know, Captain, uh, once the money shot is done, do you you think you could come back down and we could continue this conversation? Kirk goes up into the bedroom. He's going to tell Antonio, I'm going back to Starfleet. Again, nothing about his son. But we do take time to mention Spock and we do take time to talk about antiques with bones, but no mention of this boy, not even a picture of David, which featured into Star Trek VI, not even a photo of David anywhere in this cabin retreat. Where was the writing in this? Now let's go another step. He goes up into this bedroom and it magically transforms into, I'm not sure if it was, but I'm wondering, is it William Shatner's horse ranch? Because Shatner, of course, if stories are to be believed, obviously has uh, an ego from these stories and wants to show off his horse riding skills because Shatner has made it very clear that that he raises, you know, horses. So we have a horse riding moment, I guess. And, you know, Patrick Stewart is along for the ride on this. So he's got to get on horseback and we've got to chase James T. Kirk around the California countryside. It's very clear we're in the hills of California because of budget. And there's a scene where Kirk, you know, has to jump over some ravine. And somehow this triggers James T. Kirk, a man who is smart enough to outwit Khan and do all the things figuring out time travel to save the world, suddenly realizes it, it takes a ravine, not even a ravine, a small ditch that the horse jumps over. And he gives some stupid story about, you know how many times I've jumped, jumped that and I was always scared, but not this time. This place isn't real. Oh, now this place isn't real. You have the captain of the Enterprise, which right there, the lazy writing, you think Kirk would say, wait, the Enterprise? You're from the Enterprise? Like the Enterprise? My God, what's that Enterprise like? Uh, Let's talk about that. You're from the future and the future captain of the Enterprise. And as you know, I was the captain of two Enterprises, the Enterprise and the Enterprise A. And I disappeared off the Enterprise B. No talk of this at all. None. But we talk about Antonia and and we talk about horse jumping over, over a creek bed, you know, that kind of thing, over a ditch. This is cinema. No wonder Nimoy turned down this movie. It was a bad script. And when you read about how the producers and the writers defended this script, I don't know why, other than them just simply saying behind closed doors, who gives a shit? It's going to make money. 
That is the definition of cinema. They could have done something better. And that was Leonard Nimoy saying, you guys have a bad script. If you give it to me, I'll make it into something good. And the answer basically is Leonard. We don't care if it's good. We just want to get the two captains together. So can you just take the paycheck and direct the movie? And Leonard Nimoy just basically said, no. So jumping over this ditch easily a couple times wakes Kirk out of his stupor. And now suddenly he's listening to Jean-Luc. Oh, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe this Nexus thing isn't really all that it's cracked up to be. And, you know, Antonia, they look up and there's Antonia like Lady Godiva. She looks naked on the back of this horse and she's looking down at him. No character introduction. We've never heard of Antonia in all of the series or any of the movies. And yet there it is. David Marcus is the one. And I know that uh, Merit Buttrick was dead by this point. It doesn't matter. You could have had a stand-in. You could have had a photo. You could have done something to reference Kirk's son. In Star Trek III, Nimoy went out of his way to show Kirk devastated when David is killed down on the Genesis planet. And you just bypass all of this and throw in some chick named Antonia on horseback. After talking about this and feeling that he hasn't made a difference and he gives actually a a pretty well-written speech, I felt, he gives to Picard on horseback about not retiring. You know, don't let them... Uh, promote you. Don't let them transfer you. Don't let them do anything that takes you off the bridge of that ship. Because while you're there, you can make a difference. Damn it. That is what encapsulated all of the previous films, even from the motion picture on. This is what defines Kirk in the golden years of his life. And then it's gone. Literally in a flash, when both men turn around on horseback and just gallop out of the Nexus. And they end up on Viridian 3 with Dr. Soren. Again, how does the Nexus just transport you? The Nexus must be sentient. It must know and it has to have some type of all-seeing, all-knowing power to do these kind of things. So this brings us to Kirk's death. We're going to kill him on this rocky planet that is clearly in the U.S. Midwest somewhere. From what I understand, it was Nevada. So, and all to stop a missile from launching and against a villain that is, you know, I, I guess, I mean, it's Malcolm McDowell, you know, I mean, it's it's not going to be terrible, but really, I mean, all, all this guy's real crime is, is he wants to just be back with his family. Like, he, he doesn't want to destroy the universe. Yes, some people have to die for his own selfish reasons, but grief is what's powering this villain. So it's it's kind of hard to, to get behind Malcolm McDowell's villain. It's not like Khan. I mean, Khan was strict piss and vinegar revenge. Like, he was just out like, I'm, I'm going to kill Kirk and I'll take down everyone and everything with me. There is no focus other than Malcolm McDowell wants to be with his family again. So... It's kind of hard to hate the guy. You kind of understand him at times. So they're on this rocky planet and it's a very nondescript set. It's it's not very exciting. It's very sun bleached. I mean, it looks nice, I guess. But again, where is the writing here? And it's two older men chasing a third older man. And we have some snarky dialogue and William Shatner gets to do his Captain Kirk judo chops and a couple punches thrown on on this, you know, just really bland planet. 
And I'm thinking at this point while I was sitting in the theater, like, like this is the send off James T. Kirk is getting. He saved the planet like twice, three times. And, and now it's like, you're just going to do something here on this crappy, rocky planet. The first, uh, kill they shot a scene where they killed kirk where mcdowell shoots kirk in the back with a phaser and kirk will die on the bridge you're shooting captain kirk in the back that's how you're sending off the most legendary of all the star trek characters and one of the most enduring characters in american pop culture you shoot him in the back with a phaser blast well apparently that didn't go well They had a test audience. The audience came back and said no. So they reshot it. So they gave it a a much more heroic ending. Uh, Bridge is rattling. It's going to fall off this cliffside. Kirk has to get this remote to uh, take the the missile off of invisible mode. And he does the big leap because I'm sure somebody in the writing department said, oh, we're going to reference back to when he was jumping over that ditch with the horse. Here's his moment where he's going to have to take a chance and it's going to make a difference. And Kirk makes the leap of faith and he gets the remote and he uncloaks the uh, missile launcher and the bridge gives way and they throw Captain Kirk off the side of this cliff on a bridge. So Captain on the bridge, Captain off the bridge. Even in the disaster of, of this terrible ending and you're probably going, well, Harrison, what would you have done? I'll tell you what I would have done. Kirk needed to save the galaxy again. He needed to go out in some heroic thing of self-sacrifice, kind of like how his father did at the opening of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot. He had to go out saving his crew. He had to do something big or the way that Data saved everyone at the end of Nemesis. But you throw him off a cliff At the end, you know, Picard slinks down the mountain and pulls the wreckage off of Kirk a little bit. And he reaches in, he looks in and Kirk asks, did we do it? Did we make a difference? I guess. I mean, there's a moment there. And the only poignant moment that got me is after Kirk says it was fun. And, you know, the least I could do for the captain of the Enterprise, that kind of stuff. But it was when Kirk is seeing what we don't know what he's seeing. He's truly going where no one has gone before. He's going in to the abyss, to somewhere that even Kirk is uncharted. And his last words are, oh my. And I think that's great. Now, some people have heckled that ending, but for me as a writer, that is poignant because even Kirk is not prepared for this next trek. One brief shining second. That's all there is. There is nothing that comes close to the death of Spock in Star Trek II. And to be fair, nothing really can. But there is a Kirk moment in the death of Spock in Star Trek II that is very similar to Kirk's death at the end of Generations in just those words, oh my. It's when Spock finally dies and he says, you know, live long and prosper. And Kirk, separated from Spock on the other side of that glass, All he can utter is a futile no. The great James T. Kirk cannot stop this. And as so poignantly pointed out in a well-done script, Kirk has never truly faced death. He's always cheated his way out of it. So at the end of generations, death has finally caught Kirk. And there is no moment here in the direction 
or in the writing that gives us anything close to what Star Trek II gave us. This movie was a cynical cash grab. There's nothing here. And to bring these two captains together, they don't even give you, while they're showing Picard standing, I guess somehow Picard lugged Kirk's body all the way back up the cliffside to bury him under this cairn kind of a, a burial mound of rock. And where Picard got all of that, I don't know. But to bury Kirk's body there, instead of keeping Kirk's body to be beamed up onto the Enterprise, where that could have ended with a captain's log that Captain James T. Kirk died in the line of duty, that he did not die in the Enterprise B, and set the historical record straight. James T. Kirk is owed that much. They don't even do that. They show some aerial helicopter view spiraling around Patrick Stewart standing on top of this cliff with these rocks and he put Kirk's uh, captain's uh, Starfleet uh, medal on on the rocks. That's the send-off for James T. Kirk. Not even a captain's log saying that James T. Kirk was alive and died in the line of duty saving people on Viridian 3. Nothing. And I know I'm sounding like a real Trekker or a Trekkie at this point. I'm talking as a filmmaker, ladies and gentlemen, as a screenwriter. You basically had six motion pictures before this that gave you all the raw material to make something truly great. And you didn't even tap into it. You didn't even try to borrow from it. And the most low-hanging fruit is Kirk's son. Leonard Nimoy was 100% right. That script needed a rewrite from page one. And the movie is 100% pure cinema. I will end it, however, with the fact that it is the score that rises above the rest of the movie. Star Trek Generations also feels like a very expensive two-part episode from The Next Generation. It really does. It lo- the, even the inside of the Enterprise, it looks like just basically a well-lit, overlit TV set is really what it does. And what I mean is by a TV production set. Uh, There's little atmosphere to this film. Um, There there really just isn't much to behold. However, the score is terrific. And the scene, especially with Kirk's death, that music is wonderful. It's just a shame they couldn't give the composer better visuals to work with. This is Harrison Smith. Thanks for listening. Spot cinema wherever you can. And wherever you are in the world, I wish you and yours health and safe being. Talk to you next week. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.